Hi. Sorry. What? Sometimes I wish we'd let the music just play a little bit longer. My name's Neil Headley. Thanks for hitting the snooze button. Listen, I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of the gig when I took on a 30-plus year career in morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little bit deeper and found out that I had a heck of a lot more to learn. So, here's the bottom line. We're going to fix your sleep in this series by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. And maybe, just maybe, we can stumble upon some answers together and see what we can do about that. This week, fun episode, lots to get to. Um, Astronaut Nicole Stott, just the 10th woman in history to walk in space. And I find her story fascinating, not just about space and spacewalk and all of those different kinds of things, but also the sleep nerd in me wants to know how on earth do you fall asleep the night before you become the 10th woman in history to walk in space. You're going to be out in the middle of literal nothingness outside a spaceship. How are you falling asleep the night before? We're going to dig into that with her. We're going to dig into the science behind whatever her sleep hack is with Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona as well. Um, I got to apologize right out of the gate for being a little bit nerded out and geeked out with this episode. I was so excited because we recorded the conversation the morning that NASA successfully flew a helicopter on Mars. And it was just a few hours after that flight happened. And that's when I connected with Nicole. So I was so excited about all things space. I forgot to ask her that requisite first question. How did you sleep last night? Hopefully you find the rest of the conversation pretty interesting though. Okay. Eight-year-old me that used to run around the house with my Star Trek action figures. They were action figures, not dolls. Let's get that clear right out of the gate. Um, is is so excited and nerding out today over the ability to talk to our guest. Uh, astronaut Nicole Stott is here. Hi. Hi. Holy smokes, what a big day it is for space today. You and I are getting together, what is it, like 10 hours after a, a helicopter flew on Mars. What? How cool is that? You know, you think about it, you're like, yeah, there's these rovers there and stuff. And then you're like... That just the awe that can come from something flying on another planet. I think it's really very cool. Not even just something flying on another planet. I was having this conversation literally with someone about half an hour ago. There's the the awesomeness of something flying on another planet. There's the awesomeness of something is flying on another planet that we are controlling from this planet. Yeah. And we know it happened because we've already got photographs of it. it the, the leaps and bounds that have been made... Um, in, in the last however long are, are just dizzying, I think, to the average person. But for someone that's on the inside, <laughs> how far in advance, and, and not that you know necessarily about this specific thing, but how far in advance does make a helicopter fly on Mars show up on the calendar of someone <laughs> at NASA to start figuring out how to make that happen? Uh, a few years, at least, I think. And, you know, for this one, I, I know, like with Perseverance, the focus was all on the, the rover, right? And so all of the mechanics and what we were going to do differently with this rover itself, and then to have this, you know, this additional tool uh, of the, you know, the drone, the helicopter, um, my, my son wants to call it a drone, but, uh, it, which it is, I guess, but, it, you know, to have really that super added fancy on top drone. of it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not buying that drone off Amazon anytime soon. <laughs> I know, I know. And then, you know, just the, 
just making that happen, like you said, from the remote, you know, one planet to another kind of thing. That's what, like 35, 36 million miles away. It's, <laughs> it's not nearby. And, but then on top of that, the, you know, flying on Mars is a totally different thing to flying on Earth because of the, the density of the atmosphere and, you know, just getting the rotors to get some lift. And it's it's all just everything about it is is really, really cool. There is there's yeah. so much stuff that has been part of Martian lore. You know, you go back to the scary sci-fi movies and you go back to War of the Worlds and you go back to all the bring it forward to Matt Damon's movie where you know various things were getting sealed in little pouches and yeah. you get and then you bring it forward to now there's a, a helicopter flying around or a drone as your son wants to call it it this all of this stuff is so amazing to me what's weird sometimes is I will go and I'm I'm nerdy enough that as soon as I find out there's a launch coming or there's something cool going on, I'll jump on YouTube and I'll go over to NASA's channel on YouTube and I'll look and I'll see, what do you mean there's only 177,000 people watching this right now? This is earth-changing yeah. stuff that's going on, you know? And I love that you said that, like earth-changing, because... I think in in all of it, whether it's a helicopter flying on Mars or what we're doing on the International Space Station or the plans to go back to the moon or, you know, further out, (laughs) it's I mean, it really is all about improving life on Earth. So it is this Earth changing thing. And sometimes when you think about a helicopter flying on Mars, it's hard to connect. How could that possibly be, you know, something that's going to help improve life on Earth when, you know, when when. Yeah, it's helping us explore further off the planet, but the, it built into it is some something, whether it was the way it was built or how, the things we had to overcome to do it that are really helping us improve life on Earth as well. And I think that's amazing, you know, when you when you look at that. But yeah, that the numbers, I don't know how we do that. It's through stuff like this where we start engaging with audiences that might not otherwise be thinking about it, you know, and just kind of pique their interest and then I think they'll be the ones with the app on the phone to watch the station fly over and they'll want to be doing what you're doing, which is seeking it out, finding out more about it that way. Let me me get you to put your prediction hat on for a second, because there's so many people who have these big goals and dreams and things that are going to happen. So I want to throw two things at you in terms of timelines and just get your, not that you have inside information, but you do have a more realistic perspective than the average person. So here's a conversation I had uh, two nights ago with my two and a half year old. She's going to turn three in July. She's probably got better insight than I do. (laughs) Well, and she may end up with better insight because one of the things that I said to her was, you know, you're going to go to the moon someday. Am I, am I right? Is my kid going to go to the moon? I absolutely, I am not, I don't just believe it. I'm counting on it. I'm counting on myself and my my son going you know going to the moon so yeah i believe that is yeah you did not lie to her okay good i i will show her did not this mislead clip. her i will show her this clip and i will yeah. tell, see you're going to the moon nicole stott said so yeah. um then the other thing and and this is more technical i've i've been one of those people that for as long as i can remember now have been saying we should build a base on the moon because it'd be so much easier to launch out into space from the moon than it would from earth because of all the gravity and all of this and then that and the other do you think we're gonna have a base on the moon first or mars first because it sounds like they're both this close to happening 
Yeah, I think Moon, uh, you know, not just because it's closer, but I think it, it or maybe it is. Um, but I, I definitely think Moon, I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, being actively discussed again, too, you know, as it's part, like it's part of the plan, you know. Uh, they just announced what the other day that uh, yeah, SpaceX won that contract for the lander, you know. So, um, so that's going to be pushing on the timeline to make that happen as well. Uh, yeah, I, I think Moon, and I think it's going to be for what you just described, you know, ha allowing us to explore further off our planet by utilizing this purposely built <laughs> space station, you know, in the moon that um, will get us further, further away from Earth. But also, again, kind of this back to Earth idea of uh, utilizing the moon in ways that allows us to lift some of the industry that we have off our planet, allows us to um, utilize the resources there to, uh, I don't know, generate space-based solar power, set up a space-based solar power factory to get... It, it, non-polluting uh, energy back to the planet and then, you know, continue to let us explore. I think, and, and as my husband liked to say, we'll be living on the base in the moon, not on the moon because Ooh. the radiation there not so good for us. <laughs> yeah, good point. I, it yeah. wasn't really something they covered all that often on Space 1999. Yeah. I don't know. If, <laughs> I that know yeah. <laughs> like you and I are not of I'll entirely dis... Yeah. We're not entirely dissimilar vintage. And I mean, I remember that show as being this great thing of a, when I was a kid, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, yeah. you imagine living on the moon one day. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm still like, where's my flying cars and why aren't I, you know? I know. But, I know. but then you look at what we have done, like that, that the helicopter on Mars today and what would they flew like a piece of fabric from the right flyer on there. And you think about in a little over a hundred years, how we've gone from just getting off Earth at all, flying to <laughs> flying on another planet, it's, it's pretty incredible. Do we need another sort of John Kennedy-esque, you know, we're gonna send a person to the moon? Do we need another one of those sort of super inspirational speeches to jump that number from 177,000 viewers into something bigger? I don't know. You know, I, I'd like to think we don't need the speech, but that we need the commitment to it. Like really just the, I don't know, figuring out how you get, and, and it's difficult, you know, with our, like our political government system of funding projects like this, right? Sure. You know, I'm a person who flew on one of the, the last space shuttle flights. I'm like, holy moly, why couldn't we just keep this going while we in parallel got the other vehicle up and running? And it just doesn't, you know, in, in the government funding world, it doesn't work that way, which is why we're so excited about the public-private partnerships of getting, you know, companies invigorating that and getting them set so that they can um, do more um, with and without the support of NASA. But I just, I, it's like, how do we figure out how to just keep the commitment going and, and then be building on it versus this kind of back and forth thing we tend to do? Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, we So we talk about the planning and I, I made the reference to like how far in advance you have to plan for, you know, a, a, a helicopter to lift off yeah. of Mars. But I mean, there's so much planning that goes into all of these things. And I want to talk about, I mean, let, in a few minutes, I want to get to the specifics of the night before you became just the 10th woman in history to walk in space. We'll get to that, <laughs> which I can't even believe I'm having a conversation with someone where I got to say that out loud. Um 
But before I can't you believe get that I'm that, the person you got to say it out loud to <laughs> that I got to do it. <laughs> right? You ever you ever sit back and you're in your armchair yeah, and you like, go, hmm. I did that. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Um, I do. Before we get to that point, I mean, in the interest of planning all that out, I'm sure before they started putting people like you on the International Space Station, things like sleep and all of that, I mean, you know, people talk about how do you go to the bathroom on the space station, blah, 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 all that stuff. But to me, the fascinating part is sleep because even just from a... Uh, and I'm going to, uh, my friend, Dr. Michael Granner at the University of Arizona is going to love that I preface the question this way. Just from a circadian perspective, you see on the International Space Station 16 sunrises a day. How yeah. does that not throw off your body clock and how do you prepare for something like that? Well, I think uh, one of the ways is that, you know, on the station itself, there are windows but there's not, it's not like these, you know, these gorgeous spacecraft that you see, although I think the space station is gorgeous, but you know, these space sta stations or ships we see um, in the movies where it's these big glass panels, you're just surrounded by all of that so that the light and dark would be coming in. It, you know, it's kind of like being in a closed in room and then managing the light um, within that yourself, you know, turning the lights on, turning the lights off. It's not like there's 16, whoa, it gets really bright and then gets really dark um, times a day. So, but then the challenge with that is, okay, how do you manage this like room light to to deal with that too? And so we have our, our um, schedules that are like planned out, like down to five minute increments, you know, throughout the day, the, kind of the get up time, the meal times, the go to bed time, that kind of stuff, which puts you into you know, kind of a set rhythm of stuff. But um, we've finally gotten onto the station, the like the colored lighting, you know, they finally incorporated like the blue light for when you're waking up and then the white light throughout the day and the, that reddish, you know, tinted light as it's getting towards nighttime to really mm -hmm. help people start to shift that way um, a little bit more, I guess, naturally than just kind of going by when I'm hungry and when I feel tired um, kind of thing. Because we all know that works for us a little bit, but not necessarily, <laughs> you know, all the time, especially when you're in a place where you're really excited about, okay, the day has ended, my work day has ended, and now I can put my face in front of this window and just earth gaze and, you know, get sucked into that vortex of beauty below you, you know, and 90 minutes can go by without you even realizing it. And so you could be up till one o'clock in the morning, versus going to bed at 11 like you probably should be just because you're like entranced by this view out the window. And I'm certain that never gets old, does it? Absolutely never. And I mean, I, you know, I always point to my watch because uh, during the day, if I went to the window during the day uh, on the station and just thinking, oh, I'm just going to go and look at Florida. I know Florida is going to be down there or I mean, what, what is the new surprise I'm going to see out the window? If I didn't set my alarm to remind myself to go back to work, I would be there. Just it's like was the most meditative kind of transcendent thing to be floating in front of that window experiencing the view. Yeah, It's interesting. You know, I um, we're big fans uh, around here of uh, Commander Chris Hadfield. Um, who, of course, you know, shot that video that he did for the David Bowie song on yeah. the International Space Station. And that whole thing, you kind of get that exact vibe that you're talking about, about the the windows and the everything that's coming in and the soaking all of that in. Um, 
never mind how cool it is just to shoot a music video, yeah. you know, on a space station. What? He set the bar. He set the bar kind of high for folks after him. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. Um, but I, so before we even get further into the actual sleeping thing, talk to me about the, the mechanics, if you will, of sleeping. Because, I mean, for me, there's a mattress over there. I go over, I lie down on the mattress, I fall asleep. I yeah. assume in zero gravity that's a whole other set of challenges for people who've never watched one of the myriad videos that's out there talking about sort of the mechanics of sleeping on a space station how does that even work well you know i always get people that ask me well could you just float and sleep and i'm like well yeah you you, you essentially you are just floating and sleeping but to just float freely out uh you know around the station and stuff would be um, you can do it, but you're probably going to get your hair caught in some Velcro, you know, when you right. bounce into the wall or maybe you'll bump into something you shouldn't and just bonk your noggin bad or whatever. But technically you could do that. But we um, we use sleeping bags and uh, we just kind of tie them off to a wall. And I keep going up like this because, you know, where else can you sleep on your ceiling? You know, why would you not choose to sleep on what you would think of as the ceiling right. um, when you're in space? And I would do and that on the space shuttle. <laughs> in, the, in the worst case scenario, you fall out of bed and you go nowhere. You go nowhere. You you're just, you know, it's fall. like, and that's what it's like. This, there is no up or down, you know, it's not, right. you're not going to drop. And it was always cool. Like on the shuttle, I would put it up on, um, you know, what you would think of as overhead, the, the, the ceiling. And there was something about being able to kind of fly into it, not fly in and get your legs in, but to kind of flip up and get your legs sliding in. It was like you were like going, going up into the ceiling. <laughs> really cool, kind of vampire-esque, you know, I'm gonna right? rotate and fly up into the thing. Um, and and that's, that was pretty much out in the open on the, on the shuttle. You know, you had your sleeping bag stuck to all these different walls, but everybody was kind of communal in the same area. On this, the space station, everyone has their own sleep compartment or crew compartment and it's about the size of i always say a phone booth but then i remember that a lot of people don't even know what a phone booth is yeah, anymore sure. you know those sure. red phone booths you see <laughs> in movies in um the uk and a uh, perfect amount of space i mean honestly like the perfect amount of space you'd stick your sleeping back up on the wall and when i say stick kind of tie it off the little strings and and then you could reach everything. Once you got into it, you could reach the other wall. You could have a computer there. I had my Sudoku puzzles, little book stuck to the wall that I'd do a couple of those every night. And just a really comfortable, you know, comfortable place. Cause you are, you're floating in that bag. You kind of zip it up to get yourself, you know, snuggled in and into, into the position that you're most comfortable. And, you know, then I'd get tired, turn off the light, Within five minutes, I was asleep, and I did not wake up until the alarm went off. Either the one I'd set on my watch to wake me up in the morning, or the you know the emergency alarm going off in the middle of the night. See, that's fascinating for me because I, I think of I think of that scenario, and I think of there's so many positives and so many negatives. Like to me, I think of oh, there would probably never be a scenario where I had to worry about the lump in the mattress or I can't get comfortable because there is no mattress and I'm just floating. But then again, on the other side, I feel like that's got to be so strange to get. How do you prep for that on Earth to sleep in nothingness? 
Yeah, that there is no that's definitely on the job training, I think, or on the job figuring it out because there's nothing down here. I mean, we get to see our sleeping bags. We see where, you know, you could possibly stick them. We talk about sleeping and stuff. But the feel of it, um, there's just nothing down here that can prepare you for that. And of course, there's, you know, when you get to, to space, um, you're in this microgravity environment, your body is completely offloaded. There's no like pulling down on you anymore. So one of the things that happens to us very quickly, like in the first you know, a couple hours while you're there is your spine starts to elongate, right? Your body sure. stretches out. And so, you know, you grow. <laughs> yeah. And in that first day, I would say before going to bed the first night, I had grown like an inch and a half. And that was the only uncomfortable thing to me about sleeping was that growth or that stretching. I mean, my lower back just really had that achy, you know, to where you down here you would stretch to make it feel better but right. up there it's already stretched all the way out so you can't stretched, do yeah. that and so the first couple nights sleeping were um were challenging to me because of that because you just in addition to trying to figure out what's my good spot sleeping in microgravity there was how do i try to relieve this this lower back pain while i'm sleeping but then once it was gone it was gone and wow. You know, and then it really became, and when I flew the second time, I didn't have that, that pain again. I mean, my body stretched, but I didn't feel, you know, feel the pain of it. So I could go straight to sleep in the first night. But you do have to kind of figure out what your position in that sleeping bag is. Because I've watched people, they'll have it all like zipped all the way down. They're just kind of in it and their arms are, you know, floating out like this. And then other people are completely snugged up. They've got their head back like they're, you know, trying to pretend like they're in a bed and their arms are crossed in front of them. And for me, it was more, um, you know, I'd get in, I wanted my shoulders kind of behind the bag. I had my arms down with my hands kind of crisscrossed between my knees and then my knees bent up a little bit and the bag zipped in a way that it kind of held me in that position. And then I don't know, I, I don't know how long it took me to figure that position out. Funny, but once I did, holy yeah. moly, it was, it is the best sleep I've ever had in my entire life. And sleeping through the night, that does not happen to me down here. That's a go-to position yeah. for me. I know exactly the position you're talking yeah. about um, because sometimes for me, when all else fails, I'll go with that and, and see if it works. And, and I just, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea of, you know, for example, there is no cool side of the pillow, you know, because yeah. the pillow hasn't been resting on something like all of the things that are just yeah. built into my day to day sleep experience. So altogether, how many days did you spend in space? Uh, 104. So that's 104 nights in space um, yeah. <laughs> or, or 16 sunrises a day times however many to the power of pi or something. I have no idea. Um, but there's obviously one night that at least to me, probably a couple of nights, there's the first night in space when you've got to sleep. And then there's the last night before you come back. Yeah. That's probably a challenge. But to me, the night that jumps out from, from your experience up there, like I just kept asking myself the question, if you're gonna, if you know tonight that you're gonna go on a spacewalk tomorrow, and like I said, you're going to become just the 10th woman in history to have done that. Talk to me about what that night was like. And the reason that I ask, and you and I talked about a little bit 
about this by email, but for people who have no idea what I'm even talking about, they tuned in for <laughs> you, and I'm just some random guy who happened to show up. Um, I'm coming up on 50 years now, a battle with chronic sleep problems. Mm -hmm. And so I pick the brains of people like you who had some kind of unique sleep challenge, and whatever it is that you're gonna tell me works for you, either on the space station or here on Earth, I'm gonna take that thing, and I'm gonna go and try it for two weeks, and see mm. if it made a difference in my sleep or not. And so, and every few weeks, it's a it's a brand new person with an interesting sleep challenge. I get a different sleep tip from them. Rinse, repeat, and keep going until I find a thing that makes a tangible, measurable difference. Whether that's with my headband and all the electrodes that are in it. Whether that's the cognitive tests that I'm going to be doing multiple times a week uh, to see... You know, when I wake up in the morning, is my is my brain ready to go or does my brain stay foggy for the next six hours because there wasn't really quality sleep there? So you're spacewalking tomorrow. You're t it's time to go to bed. What on earth was that like? Um, pretty, pretty <laughs> surreal, I would say, just like the whole, I mean, to me, the whole the whole space flight experience, I think you can use that word, you know, pretty freely. But, or the whole, I mean, the whole space flight, yeah. But the, like the spacewalk was probably the, the surrealist of it all, you know, getting your own little suit going, like your mini spaceship going outside doing this thing. And, and you know that in that time, you wanna be very diligent and deliberate and, you know, aware, because there's gonna be all of these other things that you've never experienced before that are coming into play as well. Sure. You don't just um, go out of the spaceship and then hang and then just hang out for a while. Yeah, if well, that would be awesome, by the way. Um, I did yeah. have the chance to ride on the end of the robotic arm for about um, 20 minutes from one end of the station down into the payload bay, hanging onto this big old box. Oh. And um, that's where I had to tell, I know I'm not answering your question, but that's where I had to tell myself, okay, Nikki, don't fall asleep. It was so peaceful and comfortable i had gotten the temperature right in my suit you know nobody was really chitty chatting it was this just the the quiet hum of the fans in the suit and i felt like i was i felt like i was perfectly still you know and i'm hanging onto this box that on the ground that would have weighed probably 800 pounds but i could have just you know done anything i wanted with it up there but i'm holding on to it and my crewmate is moving me on this arm this crane like arm from one place to the other uh, and I felt like I was just standing still. The station moved out of my view. Earth was rotating in my view. And then out of nowhere comes a space shuttle. And I, I mean, I remember actively thinking, okay, you are so comfortable, so relaxed. Do not be that person that falls asleep in their spacesuit <laughs> on the end, on the end of the arm. But, um, and that might've been because I was tired too. Who, know, who knows? But I think the thing that, probably helped me the most and I don't know I feel bad because I don't know if this will help you in your um your uh your journey here is I felt like I needed to not try to introduce something new that I'd never done before that helped me sleep so you know one of the folks had said oh well when you go into the airlock to sleep for the night before going out on the spacewalk you know we have these you know, eye masks that you could use, or we have, um, you know, you could tie yourself differently down in the, in the, the sleeping bag or something. And, 
And I was like, man, you know, I don't want to do that because I don't know how I feel about sleeping in this eye mask or how I feel feel about put my sleeping bag that way. And so I tried, I really just tried to do all the things that I know make me the most comfortable when I sleep was, you know, sleeping any other night before that. Um, in addition to trying to get a good night's sleep the few nights before, which in honesty, that might've been more difficult for me than the, the night before this, the spacewalk itself um, was just this trying to be rested, just leading up to that night was, um, was a bit of a challenge because of all the other work that's going on. Um, but for me, it was don't try to do anything different. You know, I sleep with earplugs every night, sleep with earplugs. Um, I go to bed by this time, go to bed by that time. Uh, and I know that's, that isn't very helpful. <laughs> no, it's very helpful because, I mean, that, because by virtue of sticking to the things that for you work, you already have a sense of what works. So for you, regular bedtime earplugs, are there any other kind of, you know, I know that, I know that for an astronaut, there, there's all the checklists that have to be run through before everything is set to go. Yeah. So what else is on that checklist other than earplugs and regular bedtime? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, I wanted, there was, you know, I wanted to be as, and I guess I try to do this, this normally, but this was really, really important, I think, that night was to not feel like when I woke up in the morning, I was going to be like running around, floating around like a maniac, trying to get all the stuff I needed together for that next, you know, the post wake up time frame. I really wanted to make sure, OK, everything that I need, my the undergarments that I'm going to wear under my spacesuit, the um, the breakfast bar I'm going to eat, you know, after I get up, uh, you know, the, the my thoughts about how I'm going to go get to the to the bathroom and do all the normal morning thing stuff. I wanted to have that as like ready. And so I didn't have to think about it at all um, when I got up in the morning. And and that's not you know, as much as I say, I like to try to think about doing that's not something I am always good at. But I knew if I, even if I had slept really well the night before the spacewalk, if I got up in the morning and I was just like scrambling around like a, you know, a, a crazy woman trying to get all of this stuff together that I could have done the night before, that would have, that would have probably been more disruptive than not sleeping well. So not putting too much pressure on the sleep. Yeah. Also there. Okay. See, there's, there, I mean, that's, there is, there's a ton of useful information there, even though you didn't think it was going to be useful because... <laughs> I think there are a lot of people and and typically where it comes up on a show like this is we talk about a, a, a term that's been coined recently orthosomnia which is where people get so um, riveted to the data that comes from their smartwatch you know that purports to tell them all this information about their sleep that the the gamification of the numbers then creates its own special brand yeah. of insomnia because they freak out about whether or not the smartwatch says they're getting enough REM sleep, blah, blah, blah. And the focus on the data starts to mess with your sleep in and of itself. And so for you, I mean, there's there's a lot of use in this idea of stop putting so much pressure on your sleep. Just go with the things that you know work for you. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the watches and stuff, because one of the things that they've been trying to do since the very beginning of flying in space is, is study the sleep patterns of the, of the people that are there. How can we help them sleep better? You know, when we think about doing these different kinds of missions, what's going to be, is it going to be the lights? Is it going to be, you know, a more comfortable sleeping bag? You know, what, what is it that's going to help the crew, crew members sleep? And um, when I flew, they were still doing that the data collection in a way you had this little watch thing that they called it an acti watch and basically sure. measured if you were moving around and you know it had little sensors in it like that but it didn't give you all the numbers and the data like you're talking about that we can do on our our smart watches now and so i had every morning when i got up the one of the first things i had to do was get on the computer and fill out this little survey of how well i thought i slept you know what time did i go to bed but you know these repeated questions that honestly they stressed me out a little bit because i felt like i first of all i felt like man i don't know if i remember this do i feel like i slept all night do i think i only slept 6 of the 8 hours i don't I don't know. I mean, I really was like stressed about filling the thing out right. And then I know there was probably a phase where I just said, screw it. I'm just a six, 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 you know, <laughs> just like because I didn't really know. And so I think the fact that we can get those measurements now is is a useful thing. But I, I understand, like you're saying, I we, we as humans, especially that want are really kind of interested in what's going on with ourselves. We, we spend a little too much time on looking at that when maybe that's something we need to hand over to somebody else to look at for us and yeah. um, evaluate. It's interesting, that survey that you're talking about, I mean, it's, it's, it's now part of, you know, what they do if you go to a sleep lab. Like when I went for my, you know, and I had all the electrodes mm -hmm. stuck to my head and all the different things going on. Yeah, right before you go to sleep, they make you fill out that survey that you're talking about and you wake up in the in the morning and the first thing you do before they let you take off all the goop that stuck the electrodes to your yeah. head, uh, they make you fill out the survey again. And and one of those common terms that people talk about, and you brought it up, uh, they call it, I think, sleep state misperception, where you wake up with this completely false idea of how much you slept. I know that in my case, I woke up and on the survey, it says about how long do you think you slept? And I said, I don't know, probably about four and a half hours, it feels like. And I came back and it was six hours and 45. So yeah. I had no idea yeah. how much I had slept. And apparently that's a super common thing, even for people who wear this crazy stuff, where your Fitbit thinks that you, you were asleep for this long, yeah. but it was actually a completely different number, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, I, and all of that, I want it to be just... If you're going to put the electrode on me, that thing better tell you everything about how I slept. I don't want to, yeah. want to have to yeah. tell you. And then, you know, I, I'm sure you've you've talked to people about this, too. Um, when we maybe from a different direction, but like when when we were training to go to space station, you know, over three years of my time was spent out of the country, like 50, over 50 percent of my time in a three year period was spent out of the country, traveling to Russia, to Germany, to Canada, to, you know, to Japan training so i'd be four weeks in star city russia four weeks at home four weeks blah 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 back and forth you know with this time zone shift going on all the time you know and getting there and then needing to be on and ready to go train like the next day after landing and so um there was this tendency and i tried really hard not to do this because i never felt well when i did was to like have a, a sleep aid to take some kind of medication to help you sleep to to try to adjust for the time zone. And I remember the several times that I did that, I would go to sleep, 
my alarm would go off, I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, I, I guess I slept for eight hours and I would feel like I hadn't slept at all. Sure. You yeah. know, I don't know if That's... it's a mind versus body or what thing, but that was not good well, to me. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. And the thing that for so many people they discover when they start going down the, how am I going to fix my sleep path is that there's so much stuff that's out there that purports to be able to like, uh, I'm, I'm super excited to write the chapter in, in the book when it comes out about melatonin because melatonin, which, which, and even family doctors will prescribe melatonin uh, because for the five hours they spent in med school learning about sleep, and most of that five hours is about sleep apnea, mm-hmm. um, you know, they learn about melatonin. And really, melatonin's only good if you're jet lagged. And outside of melatonin, or outside of jet lag, it doesn't really do anything. Right. But there are so many products out there. And then, okay, so then let's go down the road of Ambien and, and Zequil and all these different things that. You know, there's a, a, a great quote that has been floating around for a while. Sedation is not sleep, you know, because there's sleep architecture and things that have to happen in a particular way in order for you to be able to wake up feeling refreshed, like you slept and you got rest. Yeah. And, you know, that's what obviously you got robbed of. I am so super grateful that you had time um, for this today because it's a huge day for anybody that's ever been associated with space. But I can't let you go without asking you about the space suit behind you, because that is obviously not the suit you were wearing when you became the 10th woman in history to walk in space. No, although I'll tell you, every astronaut that sees these suits or helped, has helped us work on them wants their suit to look like this and not just be the white you know, suit anymore. Um, this cool. is <laughs> This is one of the art space suits that we've done through a, uh, a foundation we have called Space for Art, which is, our, our tagline is that we're uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art. And um, this suit here was made, uh, and it's all original artwork in this suit. Um, our real spacesuit company, ILC Dover, quilts these together for us. So the same company that makes those big white suits is, is working with us on these. This suit has the artwork from kids in hospitals and refugee centers in over 50 countries um, incorporated into it. Um, there is an art spacesuit on board the space station right now that was built through our Russian partners, um, also an international suit that hopefully will make its debut in space um, in the next couple months. And uh, I think this is the fifth of the ones that we've done. And it's just the most incredible project um, in the short, you know, doing what our tagline said, but work, working with kids that you know, are going through what you hope is the worst thing they ever have to deal with in their life. And you bring a little space exploration and art into the mix and they're thinking about their future. They're transcending that, you know, experience they're having. They're sitting up straighter and um, and they're they're thinking about good things. And I, I honestly believe I got to go to space so that I could come back and bring the space and the art together and work on these projects. Yeah, thanks for asking. It is cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> there you go astronaut nicole scott on the snooze button podcast uh information on where to find her track what she's doing all those kinds of things in the uh, notes below the show and uh, on our website as well at the snoozebutton.com now let's get set to pass the science of her sleep 
hack through the filter of Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona. We'll do that in just a second. First, a very quick note for a website that I want you to visit. I want you to have it in the back of your mind the next time you are getting to work on a new re website project for whatever it is you happen to be doing. I have a bajillion different projects on the go. I have this one. I have another thing. I've never talked about it here because I didn't want to really cross-pollinate. Um, you know the whole the tiny house people and the nomad land people and all of that? Um, so what we're in the middle of doing at my house is we're in the middle of converting a 40-foot school bus into an RV, uh, just for the fun of it. Um, and who knows where we'll go after all of that is complete. But we built a website for it, and there's a podcast for that too. But the very first step in getting that organized was booking the web space for it. And there's one company I use for all of it. It's called Nexus. I've arranged a special deal for you, though, to use the very same hosting infrastructure that I depend on for every project I take on. And there are about a dozen of them in the pipeline right now. Uh, step one book the web hosting with Nexus. I've arranged a deal for bedheads. That's folks that listen to this show or watch this show on YouTube. If you go to the website, neilsentme.com, neilsentme.com. I've arranged a 25% discount for you on your first three months of web hosting with Nexus, the very same stuff that I use that is the backbone of everything I'm involved in. So go have a look. Let's talk to Michael. All right, so we're lucky in that we have one of the best in the business, Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona. Dr. Michael Grandner, one of the, as far as I'm concerned, one of the planet's leading sleep experts. And you don't have to look very far into my Twitter feed to see people saying basically the same kinds of things. I got a note uh, the other day from somebody that's out at the University of Calgary who uh, loves the show and says, listen, for my money, you can't have Michael Grandner on the show often enough because he is one of the best there is. So you got fans all over over the place. Thanks for having time for this. No, thanks. I, I think this is great. And, and I think I think this is a great way to talk about something that, you know, touches everybody and, and even relating to the topic for today. You know, sleep is a non-negotiable. Sleep is something that, that there's no way to escape it. There's no way to get out of doing it. And even when you're um, when you're in a situation where even the laws of gravity are, are different, you, your body still has to find a way to sleep. Right. Um, and it's funny. I mean, early on, I was asking a lot of questions with you in mind because I know circadian rhythm is is at the heart of so much of where your interests lie. And I started thinking about that fact that going a bajillion miles around uh, an hour you know, in synchronous orbit with the Earth, <laughs> they literally have a sunrise every 90 minutes on the International Space Station. So I was fascinated about what that even does to their abilities to sleep. But apparently NASA not only spent time thinking about that, but thinking about this weird thing of how do you even train someone to sleep in zero G? And it sounds from astronaut Nicole Stott like her whole thing is relax, don't put too much pressure yeah. on your sleep, otherwise you're not gonna get to sleep. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, one of the things I like to tell patients is that nobody got to sleep faster by trying harder. Um, right. It's it, it's different from other aspects of life or, or like I've got a, one of my mentors talks about um, it's like, you know, if you want the bird to land in your hand, you, you have to be gentle with it. And if you squeeze, it's going to fly away. If you try sure. too hard, if you grasp too aggressively at it and, and, and struggle too much, it backfires yep, and, and it falls through your hands. 
Somebody said to me once, it's like, because I did this as one of those wacky radio station events. Like if you're, if you're doing an egg toss and someone yeah. throws, you know, an egg at you, the idea is you have to receive it softly and you have to kind of go with the momentum of the egg because if you just hold your hand out like it's a catcher's mitt, you got shell and yolk all over your hands. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, we, we've, and you and I talked about this, I feel like it was a year ago or more where the idea was you hear people that say, I'm trying to fall asleep. Okay, well, there's one verb in there that tells you what your problem was, and it's the word trying. Trying. Yeah, exactly. The moment you're trying, yeah, I mean, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, it's like you never – one thing that never works is telling people to calm down and relax. So right? if, 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 you, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you're in front of someone and you're telling them – Calm down. Your your whatever you're doing is not going to work. This is not going to work. Maybe they do need to calm down, but telling them to do it is going to backfire. And yeah, it's the try same try thing with sleep. Try calm down and relax the next time you're having a less than awesome conversation <laughs> with your spouse. See how far right. that phrase gets you. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes sometimes the world just doesn't bend to our will, and sometimes. Um, it, it fights it. And, and by trying to bend the world to our will, we actually break it. And, and so that's what happens with sleep a lot of the times. When people try too hard to sleep, um, they actually end up making sleep more difficult. There's actually a, a whole therapy for insomnia. This is, most people have, so people have heard of like CBTI and, and some of these other insomnia techniques. But there's a therapy for insomnia that, that I use sometimes that's less well-known. Um, and it's called paradoxical intention, which as the name sounds, um, I mean, you know, paradoxical intention means try to do the thing you're not supposed to be doing. And, you know, and so, so what you do is this is for people who are trying really hard to sleep and really stressed about being unable to do it. So what you do is you turn the tables and say, all right, for the next few days, tr don't try and sleep, try and stay awake. Let's see how far through the night you can get without sleeping. And they're like, but what if I stay awake all night? Then I say, then you win. Okay, now try it again the next night and see what happens. And I bet that even if you, I bet you're probably not going to make it through the whole night. Mm -hmm. And even if you do, you're certainly not going to make it through another night. Um, because what you're doing is you're taking the performance anxiety out of it. And what you're doing is you're going from being unable to fall asleep to being unable to stay awake. And you still have to fight it. You have to try fighting it until you can't anymore. And then what happens is you start teaching your body what that feeling is like, that idea of surrendering to sleep, the idea that sleep actually can take control once you get out of the way. And you can do this. Uh, and so for some patients, actually, it, it doesn't take more than a couple days to sort of break this cycle that they get themselves into. But yeah, paradoxical intention for, for severe insomnia cases, it can really turn the tables on them. Is that related to the thing that popped up online this week about sleep restriction therapy for insomnia? Are those two ideas kind of kinda. related? They're, they're kind of related where I think, um, I, I suspect the paradoxical intention came out of sleep restriction therapy. So sleep restriction therapy, it's the worst name for a therapy. Sleep restriction therapy for insomnia, its full name is the worst name for an insomnia therapy. I mean, right? if you have insomnia and you're in the, in the supermarket of insomnia therapies and there are things called like go to sleep and then one of them is sleep restriction – that's not the one you're going to choose. No, However, no, I'm not going there. No. <laughs> bang for your buck. 
it's actually probably the most effective for chronic insomnia. So this is this is what sleep restriction therapy is. And and it's called sleep restriction therapy because sleep restriction in and of itself, I like it might get some of these effects, but it usually requires sort of how does one say do not try this at home um it usually requires the the assistance of someone who knows what they're doing a spotter uh, a coach uh, a sleep expert uh, some sure. some therapist who is trained on this so anyway the way it works is this um when you're in bed you want to sleep and um so if you're losing sleep if you lost sleep where would you look for it? Uh, when you lose your keys, where do you look for them? The last place you had them. So that's what people do with sleep. Where do they look for their sleep? In bed. That's the last place they had it, but it's not there. Um, this is where stimulus control comes in. We talked about that, about getting out of bed if you're not sleeping. Right. Um, sleep restriction therapy came out around the same time and, and, ha and is, uh, embraces a similar construct. They're usually used together. What sleep restriction therapy is, it's aligning your ability to sleep with your opportunity because you you're giving yourself too much of an opportunity and it's it's a mess um you need to you need to tighten it up you need to you need to put pressure on the hose because your water's coming out in a trickle in, out of out of your garden hose and you gotta you know it's not it's not getting you where you need to go so you got to put your finger over the over the or the thumb over the hole and and add pressure sure. and so you got to put pressure on the system to get to get the extra space out so what you do is if you're spending eight hours in bed, but only spending six hours of sleep, we say, well, we know your body can sleep physically six hours. So let's align your opportunity to your ability. So we restrict the, your sleep opportunity window to the amount of time you physically, we know you can sleep. Then what happens is you still have all these barriers to cross. And, and so at first, maybe for a few days, you're actually sleeping less. But very quickly, what happens is you fill that time. Um, and then what happens once you can fill that time, all right, now, but they're like, but that's not enough. Okay, well, before we try giving you more, let's, let's, let's see if you can handle what you can do. All right, so you can fill that time. Okay, let's give you a little more. See if you can fill that. All right, let's give you a little more. See if you can fill that. And you, and you upwardly, um, you upwardly increase their window until they can't fill it anymore. Um, and so it's called sleep restriction, but sleep restriction is actually the first step. And you're not actually, I mean, sometimes you're really restricting their sleep, but really what you're doing is you're restricting their opportunity to align with what their ability is. And then most of actually sleep restriction therapy is actually expanding where you're, it's, think of it this way. Um, um, some, someone I, I consider a mentor, one of the leaders in the field um, gave me this metaphor. This is Don Posner. Um, and, and, when he explains to me, it's like, it's like pizza dough. And I'm, I'm in Arizona, so I explain it to people like tortillas. You Makes know, like, so like you have dough. Sure. And let's say, let's say you're spreading out the dough over your, over your table. And if you spread it out too far, too fast, what do you get? It, it doesn't cover the space. You get holes pop up. If the holes are small, you can pinch them closed. But if, if you're spreading it out too far, too fast, and too thin, you can't plug those holes. You can't fix that. The only solution is you got to take the dough, roll it back up into a ball and start spreading it out again. Only this time do it slower and a little more carefully. And that's sleep restriction therapy. We take it spread out. It's the same amount of sleep spread over too much space. Let's compress it. Let's break it down, compress it and then build it back up again. So yeah, so, so that's sleep restriction therapy. Because you know that I like stupid metaphors. 
because uh, yes. you've you've learned that from the million times we've talked now. Um, here's another one, and tell me if I'm if I'm close. So if I go into the gym and I try to lift 500 pounds, uh, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. I'm never going to be able to lift 500 pounds. 500 pounds is eight hours. Um, right. Whereas instead, if I go and I try to lift 100 pounds. So let's say that's the six hours that I actually know I can sleep and the, the, the maximum weight that's in there is 100 pounds. OK, well, then I know that I can do that. And if I if I stick to that, that's my maximum opportunity, then right. maybe maybe next week I, I'll walk in and the gym will have 110 pounds. And so now that I know right. I can knock out 100 pounds over here, maybe now that they've got the 110 pound weights, maybe I can try that and that's the whole thing of pushing the boundaries out is, is yeah exactly exactly and 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 to to sort of expand the analogy to the beginning part where like you're trying to lift 500 pounds you can lift 100 you're able to get 100 of it off the ground but like you're not lifting anything and you're discouraged and then you're hating going to the gym right and then you have all this emotional baggage about weight lifting the weight and it's all working against you and making it worse so instead of try and instead of saying what we're going to do, we're going to do all these exercises to get you to be able to lift 500 pounds. Forget the 500 pounds. What can you do? Let's start there. Let's 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 only give you a hundred pound weight. Actually, maybe let's even drop it down to a 90 pound weight. And so build on that success. Then slowly increase it until you can't lift it anymore. And then go with that. But now you know, like if you want to expand, you know how to do it. But you also know when to stop. If I remember um, correctly, to, the, yeah. the exercise people will tell you that you're always you're you're lifting till until failure, and then right. failure is a is a metric that keeps evolving as you get stronger. Much like I exactly. guess in sleep restriction therapy, six hours becomes six fifteen, six fifteen becomes six thirty. But if you're only and and to to put a bow on this whole. Uh, analogy it, it's if you're only going to be able to lift 100 let's make it the best 100 you've yes, ever lifted exactly exactly nice. so you're building okay. on success that's a great i'm going to have to totally steal that analogy especially with all the athletic stuff i'd never thought of it that way but you're totally right it's about it's about it, instead of starting from your goal uh, which maybe you used to be able to do forget the goal start where where you are and build yourself up solely from there. I like this idea. Okay. And, but, and but so you're right that in sleep restriction, what we do with people is they worry a lot about not being able to sleep. So what we do is we take that away and say, actually, you're not even allowed in bed. Don't even, you're not even, let's say you've, you've been spending 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. in bed, but you're only sleeping six hours. No, you get midnight to six. Like, but what if I'm really tired at 1030? Good. Embrace it. Like, yeah. Feel tired know what it's like to feel tired and 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 go from being unable to sleep to be un, unable to stay awake let go of that performance anxiety and if anything feel what it's like to go when you're by the time you're asleep you are so ready for sleep you are you've been you've been waiting you've been chomping at the bit now for a while and you're off asleep it's as opposed to like am i ready i don't know and then you get into bed your mind's going maybe by midnight you're getting to bed your mind wants to go but it's too tired and it poops out and so then you develop a new pattern of your mind no longer racing when you get into bed because you've untrained it. You've, you've, you've taken the steam out of it. So by the time you start expanding again, it, it doesn't have that inertia anymore. So, so that's why this whole idea of don't worry about it. 
this whole idea of of letting go of the need to to be in control of of sleep is is so important as part of helping people sleep better. So that so, was it. That's a great technique. Because of this uh, idea that I have now that we're in this stage of the project, where if I bring a person on that's got you know whatever their sleep challenge is, and I learn how they overcome it. So in Nicole's case, she. Uh, just doesn't put a lot of pressure on her sleep and and you know it is what it is so if I'm going to try her hack for two weeks yeah it sounds like my version of the hack is going to be going back sort of through my stats um, and and the the sleep that I have been getting traditionally and take let's say on an average night um, for you know for the past month or so let's say I've been getting six and a half hours so instead what I should do is I should be changing my sleep opportunity to six and a half hours try that for a couple of weeks and see what that does maybe to my sleep staging to my number of uh, times awake all those sorts of things is that is that kind of how maybe. to approach that I mean, that could be one well, that could be one way to do it but but I, I would. I wouldn't have it be okay. Now my window is six hours, so like I I need to fill it or whatever. It's it's what she's doing is she's taking she's taking the expectation out, trusting the process, and also my guess is knowing that every night doesn't have to be perfect in order for you to be fine. Right. Um. And and having an imperfect night, worrying about the imperfect night causes more damage than actually um, experiencing the imperfect night. And so having the imperfect night and not worrying about it leads to better nights in the future as opposed to learning to worry. So what I, I would take what you what you described and just add the additional tweak of um, if 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 it's time for you to go to bed and you're like, I'm not ready. I'm just not ready. Don't go to bed. Uh, wait until you're ready or wait. And sometimes people don't know when they're ready. I would say wait until you're until you think it's time to give it a shot. But don't be judgmental on yourself if you find out, oh, actually, I was a little early. And like, and, and, and relax and be fine. If you get to the point where it struggles, try, a, try maybe a paradoxical intention exercise and say, like, I'm going to see how long I can stay up and see what, see, and see what actually happens if you well, want to do that, too. And you see, that's one of the interesting things about while we're still in the middle or maybe depending on where you live toward the end. Uh, of this work from home thing that we're all still yeah. doing is I read a great a piece from a, a marketing genius uh, named Seth Godin and I'll put a link mm -hmm. to it um, in the in the description um, you know both on the show notes and and on the YouTube channel um, Seth talks about this idea of he applied it to entrepreneurs at the time because this was written before COVID was a thing but he talked about how for the entrepreneur there is no such thing as done there is always right. one more email you can send there's always one more proposal you can read there's always one more edit you can make there's all these different things if you're an entrepreneur so if you're gonna do the thing of of, I'm going to see how long I can stay awake, then to me, the challenge becomes don't fill that with screen time on things right. that you're Stuff. working on. But then to me, and, and this is sort of the fun back and forth that I have with all of this, is, okay, um, so let's say, let's pretend for a second, let's pick a number out of the sky. Let's say I've decided that part of my sleep hygiene routine is going to be no screens for 90 minutes before bed. Well, if bed is a fluid concept because I'm now seeing how long I can stay awake, how do I know when it's time to walk away from the screen if I don't right. know when bed is? 
So, so I think I, I think you raise um, two really interesting points that I think kind of have the same answer. One interesting point is is this question of when is it okay to let go, and 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 even when something is never done, um, when do you stop? And then the other one is what happens when the target is a moving target and you want to know where to aim. Right. Um, and I think the answer to both of those, at least in, in the short term and in, 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 in what you're doing and what I would challenge you to figure out a way to work this in is give yourself permission for it to not be perfect. Um, and so, like, you know, give yourself permission to to never be finished, to 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 say I can to, to put something down and to say, I'm finished with it now, even though I know there's more that can be done. And also maybe give yourself permission to not be exactly 90 minutes. Um, you know, so it's not gonna be perfect. And and the worrying about it being perfect is probably gonna end up backfiring more than, than building some flexibility into the system. Um, th that's what I would say, this whole idea of, of, of letting go. I mean, letting go is, sounds very, campy sounds very new agey whatever but maybe maybe it's not about learning to let go maybe it's more about learning to give yourself permission to be done at the end of the day where it's like what do i do for that time how do i possibly spend an hour out of 24 hours not being productive quote unquote right. or, or checking things off of lists well you got to give yourself permission to do that before you can do it and you have to say whatever it takes maybe maybe your justification is actually um this is the downtime my brain needs to be maximally effective later or maybe what you're saying is actually why should i have to work 24 hours of the day like whatever it whatever it is i think if you give yourself permission to have it not be just right uh you'll be better off there you go, Dr. Michael Grandner on the Snooze Button Podcast. Uh, find us on all the usual places. Find us on our YouTube channel, unless that's where you're consuming it now, in which case I just became extraordinarily redundant. Um, Amazon, all those places that now have gotten into the podcasting space have our show waiting for you there as well. Uh, again, the snoozebutton.com, our website where you can get all the info on everything and get the latest updates on sleep science as well if you follow us on Twitter at the handle Get Your Snooze On. Next week, Dr. Alex Auerbach. He is the north of the neck guy for the Toronto Raptors. And we will be talking to him about the importance of sleep among elite athletes as well. We'll get to all that next week. Until we get together again, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?